Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. Today is Friday, April 2nd of 2021. And yesterday, in the Journal of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Anesthesia, there was a letter to the editor by a group of physicians in Italy where they described the five reasons they felt why people die of COVID-19. I found it quite interesting that this article was published in that particular journal. After all, talking about COVID in a journal of cardiothoracic and vascular anesthesia. Then you might say, Eddie, why, why were you even reading this particular journal? Well, you know, I have a lot of interest in cardiothoracic uh, medicine and cardiothoracic ICU stuff. So I get their table of contents every day. And I saw, I saw this article there. I thought it was quite odd. But, you know, I went ahead and read this article because it was only like, or this letter, so to speak. Because it was, it was only about two pages. It took me about five minutes. And I found it quite interesting because... You know, these five reasons will not come as a surprise to us because we take care of these patients every day. But it's kind of cool to see somebody else put it in print so we could think about it a little bit more. And their take is that COVID-19 causes death because of these five reasons. The first one being the organ reserve of the patients. Second is the viral infection itself. And, and I'm a little bit skeptical about this one. The third one being the disproportionate inflammatory response seen by generated by some patients. The fourth being this uh, this hypercoagulable state, which they call microclots, which is the microvascular COVID-19 lung vessel obstructive thromboinflammatory syndrome. That's quite a mouthful. As well as complications from pre-existing comorbidities and ongoing therapies. Let me start off by breaking down the first reason, which includes the organ reserve of a patient. And what they mean by this is that as a patient ages and they have more comorbidities, it makes the threshold for them to fall off the hypothetical cliff from a physiologic perspective far easier. I mean, this is the reason why the strategy of protecting our elderly and protecting the patients in a nursing home was one of the best policies that that was taken by several people out there. I'm not going to name any names. So I'm not going to go down that um, down that rabbit hole. But without giving up any personal information of patients that I've personally taken care of as an ICU doc, I took care of a gentleman who had end-stage COPD on a baseline six liters nasal cannula, who unfortunately happened to catch COVID-19. He was doing his best to take care of himself, but we all know that people just catch it and it's very weird. But it was very easy to tip him over with the worsening of his acute on chronic hypoxemic respiratory failure. Fortunately for him, spoiler alert, he did well with supportive care, remaining on high-flow nasal cannula for obviously a prolonged period of time. And he did have a quite lengthy hospital stay. But I will say that when I saw his CT scan that was performed in the emergency department upon admission to the hospital, I honestly thought this guy had no chance whatsoever in surviving. I mean, his lungs were absolutely trashed at baseline. And then the ground glass opacities that we see in our COVID patients, you know, left them with very, very little room to oxygenate. We've all seen patients who have underlying comorbidities that unfortunately have left them with little gas in the tank to fight off their illness. You know, this includes unfortunately the patients who have underlying malignancies with metastases who are undergoing chemotherapy. It's just, it's just awful. But again, that's one of the, that's the first reason why these authors state that patients die from COVID-19. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The second reason that the authors explain as a cause of death is the viral infection itself. Um, I'm honestly not so sure about this one. And the reason why, the reason for this is because I personally don't think that people die from the acute viral infection. And what I mean by the acute viral infection is when our patients are still at their house with non-complicating manifestations, such as when they lose their sense of smell, have a sore throat, runny nose, lose their sense of taste, have chills, fevers, myalgias, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, malaise, et cetera, et cetera. After numerous discussions about the clinical manifestations and the timeline, when I actually see these patients in the intensive care unit or even in the step-down unit for, for that matter, they've usually been feeling quite crummy or even reasonable in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. And they've actually been diagnosed with COVID about one week or two before they even decide to come into the hospital. And that's when they start having the worsening cough as well as their, their shortness of breath. And when they're that far into their COVID their COVID nineteen course, you know the whole syndrome, it's more because of the disproportionate inflammatory response. In my opinion, more so than the virus itself. So that actually is a tie-in into the third cause for death, which is the disproportionate inflammatory phase that we see in our COVID patients. And honestly, this is what frightens me the most. We all have these patients who present to the emergency department and, you know, they look pretty bad. They're tachypneic, they're hypoxic, et cetera. And when you go ahead and you check their baseline labs, it shows that their C-reactive protein is through the roof. And, you know, we also check ferritin levels at my shop. When you see this exceeding a thousand, uh, it gets, it gets kind of scary because the inflammatory response has possibly run itself too far. And at that point, you know, we got to kind of crunch down and work fast to help mitigate this inflammation to save the life of the patient. This is where we have noted the benefits of using corticosteroids, as well as in some cases using monoclonal antibodies, such as tocilizumab or other agents to help mitigate this hyperinflammatory response. And this is by no means a medical recommendation from me, because this is not medical advice and you should not trust me. But I personally subscribe to the notion where we need to provide certain patients with higher doses of corticosteroids, more than just the six milligrams of dexamethasone that was initially recommended by the recovery trial. I personally use, I personally favor, excuse me, using the 125 milligrams of the methylprednisolone, also called solimedrol, twice daily for three days, as they did in that Saudi Arabia trial, which I covered before on social media. And I do this for three days and then continue with the dexamethasone for the subsequent seven days to complete a 10-day course. Obviously, I don't have any prospective data on this, but it seems as if it's somewhat better. But we all have unfortunately experienced, despite our best, best efforts, guys, to mitigate this inflammation, that some patients, they just ramp up so fast that they start compromising other organs and they... Uh, unfortunately succumb to this unfortunate situation. I mean, it's just, it's just awful. The fourth cause of death noted by the authors is the coagulopathy that we see in COVID-19. 
And this paper taught me a cool term called microclots. Kind of like micro machines, but microclots, which stands for, and again, I'm going to repeat it again. Um, it stands for microvascular COVID-19 long vessels obstructive thromboinflammatory syndrome. And honestly, this is the first time I heard of this, this particular syndrome. Obviously, we've all seen it clinically, but the, the, the way that they described it is new to me. And the others of this paper described the syndrome as consisting of in situ pulmonary clot formation that also includes classical thromboembolism. And I know that there's still a debate out there as to whether these patients need full-dose anticoagulation to mitigate this, as if I'm giving my opinion here, there's no high-quality prospective randomized control trial looking at full-dose anticoagulation to my knowledge. But despite the lack of good evidence for fully anticoagulating the patients, certain uh, certain organizations have gone ahead and recommended doing this. And I've been doing this basically since the beginning of the pandemic, where we have been anticoagulating our critically ill COVID patients after the weighing the risks and benefits of this. We check D-dimers and we've chosen a number. And based on that D-dimer, you get anticoagulated if your risk of bleeding is quite low. The last noted reason as to why these authors think that COVID-19 patients die is secondary to complications from pre-existing comorbidities as well as ongoing therapies. Unfortunately, we have had very little success of saving the lives of patients who have BMIs that are extremely high. It's, it's unfortunately it's just hard to take care of these patients. Their body habitus is a relative contraindication for ECMO. Um, they prove to be quite challenging once they're sedated and intubated to go ahead and oxygenate as well as ventilate these patients. Not to mention that they're extremely challenging to put in prone position once they are intubated as they are unable to assist in their own turning. I know it's a very delicate subject, and it's unfortunately a topic that, in my opinion, is not sufficiently discussed. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm myself admitting that I'm scared to discuss it because I'm, you know, uh, I'm 5'11", I weigh 175 pounds, I work out every day, that if I talk about what a, you know, how serious this whole obesity component is that I'm going to be seem like, seem like I'm targeting people when in fact, I'm just trying to help out my, my fellow man. But that's one of the reasons why I don't actually go ahead and discuss this. But I think this is an opportunity as a society for us to capitalize on the statistics of obesity and death in COVID patients as a way to educate the general population as to the risks that are associated with obesity, not only for underlying health, heart disease, but diabetes, other commonly d discussed illnesses. But in addition to that, the fact that obesity increases the risk of death from COVID-19. So I guess this is not really a complication of pre-existing comorbidities um, in the opinion of some, but I, I guess I could justify it being here. In addition to this, since we are treating our patients with corticosteroids as well as other immunomodulating products, it, this makes our patients more susceptible to secondary infections. This includes Pseudomonas, Staph aureus, and fungal infections such as candidemia. I personally haven't seen this much candidemia in my life. And this makes it extremely tricky to care for our patients who are at baseline, you know, already having an elevated white blood cell count because of the steroids and their febrile because of their underlying inflammatory process. And then on top of that, you know, it's, it makes it hard to diagnose these things. In addition, it goes without saying, but these patients do not get intubated, excuse me, extubated 
in 24 to 48 hours. They tend to linger in our ICUs for multiple days, weeks, and sometimes even months. And every day that passes increases their likelihood of developing a secondary infection. I could personally go on and on about these complications since, you know, we have already seen them in our respective practices. Um, but, you know, it's, it's because of their comorbidities and the therapies that have that they have received. To conclude this podcast, I would honestly like to tip my hat to the authors of this paper, and I definitely recommend that you read it for yourself. They also have some good papers in their citations. It's actually quite short in total, about two pages. And I guess I guess this podcast is in text form would be longer than what their paper was, but that's because I injected a whole bunch of my own clinical perspective on this. Oh, well, I hope that you got something out of this podcast, and I'm honestly interested in hearing your feedback. So thanks, thanks very much for your support. I hope you guys all have a fantastic weekend. Um, I really hope that this pandemic is on its downturn and, and we return to normalcy soon. And I wish you a lot of health for yourself and your family. Take care, guys. Have a great day. Bye.